VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This is Episode 3, Story. This is Detective Kim Lewis. It is 1.23 p.m., the 9th of July, 2003. Present is Miss Patricia Strader, is that correct? For 40 minutes on the day after John was found dead, DeSoto County Sheriff's Office Detective Kim Lewis recorded an official interview with Pat Strader, his grandma. And Kim wanted Pat to know that investigators were taking this conversation very seriously. Do you understand the meaning of the word perjury? Yes. Perjury is lying under oath. In the state of Florida, if you are found to have committed perjury, you can be criminally charged for that. Do you understand that? The audio quality of these tapes is fuzzy in some parts because they were done on actual cassettes. But for the most part, you can hear the exchange clearly. Through some digitizing and post-production magic, the team has tried to make them as audible as possible. Now, normally, a sit-down interrogation like this between a detective and a potential suspect would be colder, pretty impersonal. But here's the thing. Pat and Kim knew one another. Pat had seen Kim grow up, and they knew each other's family members. In fact, Pat knew most of the law enforcement officers working her grandson's case. And I definitely picked up on Pat's casual demeanor from the start of the conversation. Do you swear or affirm that the information you'll provide in this statement will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Kim is going to be the best of my recollection. The main reason the sheriff's office wanted to talk with Pat was because she was one of three people who'd found John in the woods. She'd made the 911 call. She was his legal guardian. And on top of that, she admitted to removing critical pieces of evidence from the crime scene prior to law enforcement arriving. If there ever was a checklist on why to question someone in a homicide, I'd say she fit the bill. Authorities needed to get the story straight about what went down before they'd arrived on scene. They were behind 24 hours with their investigation, and one of their only ways to get the ball rolling was to have Pat, her stepson Skip, and 16-year-old Patrick Skinner tell them what they each remembered about the last time John was accounted for at the Southeast Hansel property. All three of those individuals were questioned on July 9th, but in this episode, we're going to focus on Pat's interview first. I have no actual knowledge that I could say that what time that he went over to go across the road, just going by what Skip said. It should have been somewhere around 12 or 12.30. Skip came into the house, and I, again, we think it was approximately 1 or 1.30 when he said, you know, John's not back. He said, maybe I better go check on him. 
According to Pat, she and Skip had that conversation around 1.30 p.m. Pat told Kim that Skip then drove over into the pasture and woods to look for John. He went over there and we didn't find him. He drove down the tree line. And he said since he's in the diesel, he stopped and turned the motor off, engine off so that he could hear. You know, he called him again and no answer. And he just figured he was walking around out there in the pasture. When Skip returned, he reportedly told Pat that he never saw John while on that first trip. He came on back to the house and I fixed the sandwich we ate. And then, but this time now, we're thinking it's 2, 2.30. So I, as soon as I finish with my sandwich, I get an explore and I go over there and possibly retrack his same, because I could see where the vehicle had gone through the pasture. Mm-hmm. And when I got down to the four-wheeler, I myself saw that there's nothing he's still sitting there, nothing had been done. And as I told you with the cataracts, now I'm looking off. I'm not looking down at my feet, you know. I'm looking out in the pasture for him to see him walking. You know, why would he be not at the four-wheeler to unload? And I panically screamed a couple of times, you know, John, John Wells, John Robert Wells, and no answer. So I get back in my explorer and do the same as Skip did, go to the tree line, stop, and call again. Pat's recollection was that her trek to go look for John occurred between 2.30 p.m. and 3 p.m. And her journey had also been fruitless because John never answered and never showed up at the house. And just a reminder here, we're talking about a distance of half a mile to approximately three quarters of a mile between where the trash pile was located and the front door of Pat's house. In between those locations is a lot of thick vegetation and fields. Because she'd gotten nowhere on her trip, around three o'clock, Pat said she went back home and used her landline to call John's best friend, Patrick Skinner, who lived a few houses down the street. Patrick was 16, just one year younger than John. I said, Patrick, I can't find John. And I said, I'm concerned. I said, will you go over with me? You know how he, when y'all go over there, kind of where you would go. He said, yes, how will I get there? And I said, well, I've got to go get some gas. And I said, I'll stop by on the way back and pick you up. According to her statement to police, Pat then drove to a nearby Murphy gas station at the Arcadia Walmart and back. Between approximately quarter after three and 3.30, she stopped at Patrick's house in his driveway. I blew the horn and he didn't come out. So I went on home and I called him back and he says, I'm walking out the door right now. He said I was having to get dressed. So when he drove into the yard, I just waited for him. He got in the explorer and I had my, um, had three little two-way radios, mm-hmm. and I know then I had binoculars. With that gear in tow, Pat said she and Patrick set out in her Explorer to go check the pasture again for any sign of John. They took a more direct path to the trash dump area where the four-wheeler was. Skip had decided to walk the woods on foot and take a longer route along Joshua Creek. He'd followed the tree line through some watery ditches that led in the direction of the trash pile. And I went back the same, about the same route that I had been before and went back to the four-wheeler, called John, and I walked through down through the creek, as you can see, and called him again. Once they were at the trash dump, 
Pat said Patrick walked over to the front of John's backed-in four-wheeler and made a strange discovery. Now, I don't remember in here exactly, but Patrick found the gun laying right beside the four-wheeler. He said, that's unusual. He said, John wouldn't put that in the dirt. He said it was kind of like, I believe the words he used was like buried, you know, like he didn't hit it pretty hard. And, uh, well, we couldn't understand that. Pat says before she knew what was happening, Patrick had picked up the 22 revolver, unloaded its cylinder, and poured out the bullets that were inside of it. Did you see it when Patrick picked it up? I don't think that I saw him in the act of picking it up. Okay. But then he had it in his hands, bringing it to your attention. I believe it might have been like, well, here's his gun. Okay. Did anybody examine the gun? I asked him to check to see if there's any, if he could tell if there was a, what would you say, if there's an empty, if there's any empty, yeah, casings in the gun as if it had been fired. Yes, yes, because that was my concern. Yes. Okay, and what happened? He had to work with it to get it where he could. Okay. And he told me none had been fired. After that, Pat said Patrick started following a trail of other items that were scattered near the four-wheeler and started to pick them up too. He grabbed the stuff almost in a straight line as he got closer and closer to the watery ditch. She said the items he picked up were two leather belts, a nylon gun holster, and an olive green strap that John used to tie his holster to his thigh so it wouldn't slap against him. As that was happening, she said Skip emerged from the woods and Patrick called him over near the edge of the ditch. For just a few seconds, she saw them standing sort of behind the largest section of the trash mound, pointing at something in the water. Patrick said, Skip come look. And of course, when Skip walked over to look, I went to look because I thought I was seeing the same thing, you know, maybe they were. And Skip grabbed me and turned around and said, you don't want to see this. Kim, what I saw when I was made aware of what it was, was I don't recall seeing his head because he was like in a fetal position. Mm -hmm. And I could see his shoulders and his ribs near his backbone. The water wasn't that deep over him. Had he stood up, he would have probably been in waist deep or less water, my supposition. As soon as the trio saw John's body floating, Pat said Skip rushed her away to the Explorer and they all three rode back to the house to call 911. By that time, it was roughly 4.30 p.m., No one attempted CPR or even checked to see if John was alive or in distress. Well, we've been looking for him for so long, you know. It may not be a good reason. You mean for why he didn't get in the water? Yeah. Yeah, it it is a very good reason. makes perfect sense, but I needed you to say it. Pat's short and sweet answer as to why no one even attempted to check John for signs of life was because he'd been missing for so long. She said they all just assumed he was dead when they found him, something you hear her reiterate several times during the 911 call. Okay, is there anybody there giving him CPR or anything? No, ma'am. He's been under there a long time. Is anyone there with him now? No, ma'am. They brought me back to the house. Did anyone try try to give CPR or anything on him? No, ma'am. Now, I know what a lot of you are thinking. That feels weird. 
but trust me, we'll get more into that over the next few episodes. After hearing Pat's explanation of why they didn't do CPR, Kim asked Pat about the gun. Most importantly, why the group had removed it from the crime scene. The gun yesterday, what happened with the gun? What, after, you, after you guys found, did find John, you loaded up in the truck or the Explorer and uh, Patrick drove you all back to the house. Mm-hmm. What happened from there with the gun? It stayed in the floorboard of the Explorer and the belts stayed in the back seat. Now, this was in the back seat until late just last night. Mm-hmm. And I went out after, you know, kind of the crowd eased out. I went out with that towel that it's wrapped in right now and wrapped it in a towel and picked up those belts and brought it in and put it down in the hall closet where he usually kept it. And is that where it's been until the sheriff showed up all the Yes, because he went with me to pick it up, you know, to get it. He wants to handle it, get it. He didn't want me to do it. Pat said because Patrick had told her when he picked it up that he didn't think any bullets had been fired, She assumed it had nothing to do with John's death, so she felt it was in her best interest to remove it from the scene. You heard and saw no evidence at the scene that indicated the gun was involved in John's death in any way, so you continued to keep the gun from law enforcement thinking it was irrelevant. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, I was never, as I just pointed to the shirt, no one ever asked me, did he have a gun over there? Well, we wouldn't know that. Well, of course <laughs> not. But again, right. this is what I'm saying. I didn't lie to them. Right. Because if it was not relevant, then I, I thought possibly, you know, I was stepping in a can of worms because of his age. One of the many questions Kim really wanted Pat to answer was why she and Skip had become so concerned about John just an hour after he'd left to take the trash. If taking garbage over to the dump pile was his normal chore, and he was known to spend time in the woods afterwards, then why specifically on July 8th did his absence raise red flags for them? Her answer was not what police expected. And you want to trust them too, you know? They need to take some responsibility. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Parents, when you visit California, childhood rules. If you don't remember how awesome childhood is, just ask yourself. What would kids do? Dance to a giant organ played by ocean waves? Yep. Camp in floating tree houses hundreds of feet off the ground? Check. Jump in a big tub of mud on purpose? Call it rejuvenation. We don't care. Just pack your fun pants and let childhood rule your family vacation. If you need help, ask your kids. Start planning at visitcalifornia.com. In written statements and her recorded interviews with police, Pat alluded to the possibility that John might have been up to things he shouldn't have been back in the woods on July 8th. She said she wasn't sure what exactly he could have gotten into, but he'd recently displayed some behaviors that she felt were clear indicators he wanted privacy and didn't want her meddling in his recreational habits. Detective Kim Lewis pressed Pat to be more specific, but she didn't give specifics. I guess as a way of being more blunt, 
Kim straight up asked Pat if John could have been doing drugs right before he died. And Pat didn't outright confirm that, but she also didn't squash the suggestion. The audio quality of that part of her tape-recorded interview isn't good, and at one point, the tape even cuts off, which is why I just recapped it for you. But my point is, when you look at the transcript of their conversation, it was actually Detective Kim Lewis who first suggested it could be possible that John was consuming illegal substances. I think she did this for two reasons. One, Kim knew at that point that John's autopsy showed he had drugs in his system. And two, Kim wanted to see if Pat would confirm that or maybe allude to another piece of evidence she'd hidden from the scene to protect John from people finding out he might have used drugs. But the tactic failed because Pat didn't confirm anything. This isn't the last time, though, that this preconceived notion that law enforcement had about John maybe using drugs in the woods that day will pop up. According to police reports, at 1 o'clock on July 9th, while DCSO detectives were interrogating Pat and simultaneously doing interviews with Skip and Patrick, the DeSoto County Sheriff's Office called in the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, also known as FDLE. Together, deputies and state agents had gone back out to the Southeast Hansel property to process the crime scene, or at least what was left of it. By that time, the four-wheeler and wooden trash trailer had been moved back to Pat's house. There were various sets of tire tread marks in the pasture leading to and from the crime scene, and a ton of shoe tracks and footprints were all around the area near the trash pile. All of that disruption is what crime scene experts call scene contamination. Now, it wasn't done intentionally in John's case. The commotion occurred when emergency responders initially came to the scene and thought they were just dealing with a drowning accident. To try and make some progress, though, FDLE had their crime scene tech do as good of a job as he could in terms of processing the scene and collecting items that he thought were potential pieces of evidence. First, he inspected the ground where the ATV had been parked and noticed some small red stains and smears on some blades of grass and vegetation. Then he picked up a Coors Light beer can and noted that it, quote, was fashioned into a pipe, end quote. After that, he bagged a piece of plastic wrapping that appeared to have a red stain on it and scooped up a handful of sand that also appeared to have a dark red stain soaked into it. Everything else FDLE seized as evidence included the Honda four-wheeler, the wooden trash trailer, the rake that was in the trailer, John's 22 revolver, the five unfired 17-caliber bullets that were in it, the holster, the leg strap, two of John's belts, the towel Pat said she'd wrapped those items in, John's jeans and boots and socks, as well as Skip's clothing and shoes. Law enforcement only took Pat's shoes, though, not the clothing she'd been wearing the day before. When they asked her for them, she said she'd done laundry overnight after John died, so police just dropped it. The one saving grace FDLE did have in order to get an idea of what the scene looked like closer to the time John was killed were Emmy investigator Megan Simrack's pictures from the scene. Those are some of the photos you can see on our website, counterclockpodcast.com. These pictures provide proof of where the four-wheeler was parked and give a good sense of the scene before everything was totally disrupted. They obviously don't show John's gun, holster, belts, or leg strap, though, because those items were removed before anyone got there. 
But thankfully, Megan was thorough enough in her picture taking and did get a lot of shots of the ground around the ATV. And those images showed some of the dark stained areas that the FDLE tech had collected evidence from. The pictures also showed some weird lines dug into the sand that state agents determined could be indicative of drag marks. So between what the FDLE guy found and what he gathered from the Emmy investigators' report and photos, law enforcement wrapped up their crime scene processing by mid-afternoon on July 9th. They towed the ATV and trailer along with Skip's Ford F-250 pickup truck to their lab in Fort Myers. They immediately started figuring out what they could test and what they'd have to send off to other labs to determine if blood, DNA, or traces of drugs were present. Now, the traces of drugs thing is an important theme here. Based on their reports, both DeSoto County investigators and FDLE were convinced that John had smoked some kind of drug out of the Coors Light beer can while he was back there in the woods. I literally can't find anywhere in the documentation about what their specific basis for this was, other than the fact that they just thought it could be possible. But reading between the lines, I think the reason they were so convinced of it was because, again, Dr. Anderson had told authorities that cocaine and cannabis had showed up in John's toxicology screen. I wanted to explore further this idea that John used drugs, and to best do that, I tracked down his old high school sweetheart, a woman named Beth Flowers. She's married now and has since changed her last name to Waldron, but she went by Beth Flowers back in 2003. And I should note, she's no relation to our executive producer, Ashley Flowers, by the way. Oh, I knew him around like age 12, I would say. So 11, 12 until he passed. We actually lived right down the road from each other, like maybe like three miles or so. We had a couple of us that lived a couple miles away down the road and stuff, and we would all gather up and, you know, we rode horses at the time or just rode around in the orange groves or hang out. There wasn't nobody he really disliked, and he's definitely missed by a lot of us. Beth and John dated most of middle school and high school, but broke up a few months before he died. She said their breakup was a combination of just growing up and John starting to hang out with a different crowd, but not a crowd that was into hard drugs. He never used cocaine or anything around me, never cocaine. He wasn't really into stuff like that. You know, if, you know, he may have done something he wasn't supposed to, but he really, I mean, he didn't walk a straight line, but he just wasn't all out for the partying crowd. Like he may show up at a party, but he wasn't going to party all the time. You know, he still just, we all just hung out. It wasn't nothing crazy. I did know that he used marijuana time to time. She says based on her knowledge of how hard John's life had been up until that point, she can see why he would have consumed cocaine maybe once or twice to blow off stress or feel something new. She thinks the main reason John would have even ventured into that territory was to cope with the loss of his step-grandfather, Melvin Eugene Strader Sr., who died of a massive heart attack on June 6, 2003, just weeks before John would eventually be killed. Mel Sr. was Pat Strader's second husband, and he'd become a kind of father figure to John while he lived in Arcadia. For a long time, Mel operated an independent sawmill business on the Southeast Hansel property that made wood pallets for companies that needed to transport sod or other materials. Ever since John was young, Mel had taught him how to use the mill and make something from his hands. 
It was apparently the type of relationship John desperately craved with his biological father, Mac, but never got. From everyone I've spoken with for this story, when Mel abruptly died at 70 years old, it took a big toll on John, despite the fact that John and Mel Sr. weren't even blood-related. Here's Beth again. He absolutely loved his grandfather, who died a month before that. And he always helped him out at the sawmill, and he always did stuff around the house. He's very respectful to his grandparents. I don't know, it was completely shocking for sure. So, in the weeks leading up to his death, it's conceivable to think that John might have begun to dabble in drugs outside of his normal cannabis use. But John using drugs at all was something Helen, his mother, was unaware of. Everything was going south, but I was oblivious. Helen didn't have daily or even weekly contact with John due to ongoing legal issues with Pat and an active restraining order. But during the few times she did see her son in the summer of 2003, she began to suspect that something might be up with him. She was especially concerned after an interaction they'd had days before he died, which turned out to be the last time she ever spoke with him. She'd driven to Arcadia in late June around the time Mel Sr.'s funeral was supposed to happen. She was there to put papers in her mother's mailbox that were aimed at preventing Pat from burying Mel Sr. in the Huff family plot in Arcadia. Pat's first husband, Helen's father, was buried there, and so is Helen's brother, and it's a private section of Joshua Creek Cemetery designated for members of the Huff family. So Helen felt like Pat burying Mel Strader Sr. there was unacceptable, and she let Pat know it. And I said, what are you thinking? I said, you know what? Your name is going to be mud if you do something like that. And I said, people know us. I said, putting, you know, your ex-husband, a stepfather or whatever you want to call him in there. I don't remember what point she hung up on me. So then I knew, well, it's done. So once again, the tension and infighting between Pat and Helen had grown to a fever pitch. And on the day Helen showed up at Pat's mailbox, John came out to confront her. He was really upset that Helen was trying to keep Mel Sr., his beloved step-grandpa, out of the Huff family plot. He came out, and I stopped, and I got out of the truck. But he came up, and the Explorer roaring up, and then just, like, slammed on brakes and shoved it into park and come out. And I was like, hey, and all of a sudden, like, who is this person? And he started screaming and hollering at me about Mel and sat there and I said, you know, he doesn't belong there. It's nothing against Mel. He does not belong there and she doesn't have the right to do that. I'm trying to do things legal and all that. And then he started coming like at me. He had a hat and he threw it down. And um, I'm sorry, this is the last face of his memory I had of him. Um, he, uh, said something about, you're not welcome at the funeral, whatever. And I said something like, do I look like I'm going to a funeral? I said, I'm not going to the funeral. I said, he just doesn't belong there. And then you could tell he wanted a fight and it wasn't going to go anywhere. So I got in my truck and left. And as I did, he threw kind of a fit and there's a stop sign right there. He was hitting the stop sign and stuff. And I came to the house. So John was mad at you the last time you guys talked? Yeah, about Mel. Do you remember the last words he said to you? It was something, you know, like, I think when he said, come on, you want a piece of me? And started like, he wanted to fight. 
And I, I think I said, what's wrong with you? Because I described him, he didn't have any glasses or, or sunglasses or nothing. And I remember his eye, he just had like pin, like the, the iris, not the iris, the pupil was like the size of a pen, you know, like a coat. And when he had taken his shirt off, you know, if you don't bathe in a couple of days, you have that sheen and that oiliness. And it wasn't like him because he was a clean kid. And I said, who the are you? What's wrong with you? And, you know, that I think that just made him more angry because I'm, I'm not, in my mind, his face is my son, but his actions, and he would never talk to me that way because I didn't never allow that. It, it just did not ever happen. If they did, it was behind my back. They did not do that to me. I did some digging to figure out if John had gotten into any trouble or had a rap sheet related to drug use during the summer of 2003. And turns out, he did a very, very small rap sheet. According to police reports I found with the Charlotte County Sheriff's Office, a jurisdiction that neighbors DeSoto County, John was picked up for misdemeanor marijuana possession on May 4, 2003, and released the same day. The incident occurred during a traffic stop three days after his 17th birthday. The arresting agency doesn't have any paperwork still available about the arrest, But from what I gathered based on the booking sheet and court records, it appears John didn't serve any time for this, and it was pretty much dropped. But I think that's because by the time it rolled around onto a court docket, John was already dead. The record his arrest generated, though, was definitely something DeSoto County authorities investigating his murder paid attention to. They wanted to drill down on his possible drug history as one avenue of investigation. And the people they needed to talk to were not his tight-lipped grandmother and step-uncle. The people detectives needed to speak with were John's friends, specifically one friend, Patrick Skinner. Patrick was not only an insider into John's life and habits, but he was also a witness who investigators knew had been at the original crime scene with Pat and Skip. And it was Patrick who authorities hoped would tell them everything they wanted to know about the dynamics between grandma, grandson, and step-uncle. I do know he wanted to get out. Of Arcadia? Not out of Arcadia, specifically out of the house he was living in. That's coming up in episode four, Skinner. Listen right now. Parents, when you visit California, childhood rules. If you don't remember how awesome childhood is, just ask yourself, What would kids do? Then pack your fun pants and let childhood rule your family vacation. Start planning at visitcalifornia.com. The savings rock when you find a new way to roll. Like sharing the ride to work. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others who live and work near you. It's easy and free. Plus, you can get cash and other rewards for carpooling, up to $600 a year. Get rolling on a new way to work with Rideshare. Register today at commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply. 